Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers and writers and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie, and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books, where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a book in your head, a manuscript ready to go, or maybe even 400 sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer. And yes, probably about once a month, I do get an envelope filled with loose leaf. It happens. Please visit us at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. I'm so excited to be joined today by three authors who have definitely unleashed themselves. Our first author today, Thomas Cast, is the author of The Great Convergence, and you'll definitely want to meet him and hear all about his book. Joseph Kappa is the author of The Zodiac Decoded, and then finally, Nathan Lewis is the author of Inflation, what it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it. But first, let's meet Thomas Cast, the author of The Great Convergence. And our author writes, 10,000 AD, a cantankerous scholar slipping into obscurity is out for revenge. He time travels to the year 2022 to stop his nemesis. Scott, a successful scientist at a competing university from thwarting his research into the origin of a mysterious phenomenon, the Great Convergence. Shrewd and ruthless, Scott will stop at nothing to defend his tenure track. The feud quickly spins out of control and the damage to reality grows unchecked. Caught in the crosshairs are three characters responsible for triggering the great convergence. An art-hating professional art critic who, unbeknownst to him, spontaneously switches between universes, wrecking havoc as he goes. A talentless artist whose sculptures act as a trans-universal portals and a schizophrenic astrophysicist trying to avert the invasion of alternate versions of himself from different realities. As their paths converge, the apocalyptic event takes place and the inescapable tragedy of human existence unfolds. Subversive, philosophical, science fiction, and a social satire, The Great Convergence will take you out of your comfort zone, exposing the absurdity of many ethical and intellectual ideals. Well, I can't wait to meet author Thomas Cast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, thrilled to have you. My goodness, I don't know which of your characters I love more, the, the art critic who hates art, <laughs> the non-talented artist, that one is fun too. This is just, this is just quite a, a rollicking, rollicking story. How did you get the inspiration for this? Um, that's a good question. Um, I guess there's a little part of me in each of the characters, although I made them particularly obnoxious. I mean, I'm a little bit obnoxious myself, but not as much. Uh, so the, the, the nameless narrator is is uh, is stuck in a dead-end job and... Uh, He's uh, frustrated with his work at the university. I've been a university lecturer. And although my university career wasn't as bad, I observed several, I don't know, phenomena I would, I would, I would love to change. And I know that some, some things cannot be changed. And it, it reflects uh, 
yes. in my character's behavior. His his sense uh, of, of of I don't know injustice out as as he perceives it. I've been an artist, although not as unsuccessful as, as, as Jeffrey, one of the characters in my book. But I understand his his struggles and his his troubles. The art critic I've I've met in the course of my career, many art critics, and basically I, I'm I'm trying to roll over them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is me. <laughs> um, I love that this making it stand a little bit. Yes, it's it's getting to you know get back and make statements about all the things that have happened in your life. I think that's fabulous. <laughs> Is there yeah. anyone in your life who will recognize themselves in your book? Uh, I don't think so. No, there's there's nothing specific. It's it's all absolutely fictitious. It's just that the general vibe. I think is uh, is the. I mean, someone who 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 had uh, had been working at the university will definitely recognize some of the. Some of the types, the issues, yes, and and artists and art critics and and scientists as well. So it's 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 based on on, on real life events, all those all mixed together. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, no, I actually, I, I I'm I'm kind of curious because I I haven't read the book, but but I sense that there's a, a, we've kind of come to the end of the line of the modernist art experiment, and kind of disgusted with it. <laughs> And we've also kind of come to the end of the line of the current university structure, and we're kind of disgusted with that. And and certainly you're reacting to that. But out of that, you know, when we turn the lights off on all that, we then have transitioned to something new. And I wonder if you're kind of feeling that we're ready for something new there. Great question. Well, ready or not, uh, the change is coming, I, I suppose. Uh, there's, you know, people... Um, digest media in, in a different way the the, the university has as a competition that there are many online courses and basically you, you you don't need a degree to to actually be able to do something uh i think education is really important uh, how do you obtain it not as much and i think this is my personal view uh the the, the hierarchy of, of the universities is is uh, Make it impossible for, okay. for uh, many, especially young people, to um, figure out they they way in life, and especially in the states. I understand that it, it's not like in Europe. In Europe, universities for free, but in the states, you have to pay for it. You end you end up uh, heavily in debt, uh, <laughs> learning things that you know. But you know, something you know, people change change minds, and it's okay. And after a year or two, you say, okay, well, this is not for me. I'd like to try something else, and then you know, after like I don't know. Uh, Three thousand in the red. Well, <laughs> you, 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 you have to be a yeah, lawyer now. Americans that wish they were only thirty thousand in the red, from what I hear. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it gets it gets worse. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question about your your writing of this. You know, um, in on the one hand, it sounds like something that could you know pour out of you in in stream of consciousness. But all of this time travel and all these characters, I'm almost picturing that you have an entire wall of your uh, apartment filled with post-it notes and, and line graphs. Tell me about your process. How does that go? Well, the process is very simple. I, I stare into the void and, and think a lot. And when I'm full, I, I try to write. And then, yes, and you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a bunch of notes and notebooks and whatnot strewn all, all, all over the apartment 
And the thing is, I, I tried to organize myself. In fact, it took me 10 years to 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 finish the book. Really? Not like, I, yeah, but you know, it was on and off. I, I, I've been writing it and uh, leaving for, for extended periods of time until I told myself, okay, that's it, I have to, I have to finish it. But uh, it, it, it took some time and lots of, lots of, uh, discipline uh, at the end. He went through several editors. I used uh, quite sophisticated software to to keep track of all the, all the divergent timeline timelines. Well, tell me about that. What software did you use for timelines? Because that, uh, that's a Eon timeline. It's it, you, I had to create different timelines for each character, and uh, the, the software allowed me to build in uh, intersections. Uh, in between and and it um, works very uh, works nicely with with the another application I use for writing Ulysses, which breaks everything uh, down to scenes and and whatnot. So basically, you know, I'm I'm dyslexic, so it's really difficult for me to to create something complex. At the end of the day, I created something overly complex. Uh, <laughs> but yes, it took a lot of a lot of time. And there is a lot going on, but anyway, I mean, if that sounds scary, I, mean, I don't I don't expect the, the reader to to follow all of that. And this is not important. What is important is actually the characters, what's happening to them. I mean, it's, it's their personal journey. I mean, what, what's really going on? Whether X hates Y, and I don't know, uh, Z uh, has feelings for A, B, C. Something. This is this is of, of, of less importance. Yes, well, certainly in any book, all the storyline in the world is much less important than what the evolution of the characters and what they come to know about themselves and the world. Um, right. What a, a complex story. What is, you know, in, in a sentence, what are you hoping the reader is going to gain from this? Uh, an insight into humanity, what we are, what we do, why are we the way we are, what's the meaning of life? Uh, I hope the reader can have uh, uh, quite a few laughs because it is, it's full of, full of humor. It's, it's, it's tragic and at the same time, it's funny. I try to make it make it as funny as, as possible. Uh, full of light philosophy, but not too heavy. I, I avoid spoon feeding. Uh, the book leaves you with questions rather than answers. I avoid uh, moralizing. Um, and there's there's several themes in my book. I'm sorry, I I, I guess there's more more than one sentence, but basically, <laughs> it's all about you know it's it's about humans. So one of the themes that, uh, in my book is stupidity. I mean, some of my characters are pretty smart, but they act really silly. They they blindside. They 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 so concentrated concentrated on what's important to them. They just look lose lose the picture of reality, and um, they act really human. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's so true of so many people. They the saying can't see the forest through the trees. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, tell me, is there a follow-up? What could possibly come next after this? Well, there is there is not exactly a follow-up, but I'm uh I'm doing a philosophical comic series. It's a philosophical sci-fi. I I've finished four volumes already. There's two more to go. Uh, it, it will publish in, in the coming months. And it's a little bit different. I mean, it's it's um, not as complex. Very simple premise. Lord Babla, uh, uh, an evil genius living on a remote yellow planet, creates 
pet thing, a uh, mutation in order to replace his uh, recently deceased uh, research aid. And the pet thing is highly def deficient. Now, unfortunately, the incinerator fuel is uh, gone. So Lord Babla has to improve on what he brought into being. So he takes him uh, across the across the universe and shows him the wonders of civilization. Now, uh, the thing is that the pet thing is being uh, mercilessly brainwashed and show things from Lord Babla's perspective. Basically, it's a bunch of uh, colonial uh, horrid, uh, uh, you know, statements, and he has to react. And Petting is very naive. He asks the, the right questions but get the the wrong answers, and it's upon the upon the re reader to realize what's really going on. Again, it sounds like I don't know, um, heavy, but it's not. It's full of humor, psychedelic imagery. Um, sounds uh, like something I definitely think people are going to want to read. That's what it sounds like to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Complex, but the, the simple theme that goes through the whole thing and what characters you have created. Absolutely. What characters. Uh, we're just hoping that we're going to hear more from you, if not a tie in with the book, but this this other sci fi series sounds completely fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, for anybody who really wants to learn more about this universe, um, besides reading uh, The Convergence, uh, our next author shares with us The Zodiac Decoded. Uh, Joseph Kappa is the author, and he writes, finally, the true meaning of the Zodiac has been discovered. The ancient mystery has been solved. A must read, especially by the younger generation who will one day inherit this planet. Author Joseph Kappa unravels step-by-step step the process he used in deciphering the Zodiac, revealing its true meaning. Learn for yourself that the Zodiac's story applies to all people, and it provides a message of hope particularly relevant in these unique times. All readers, young and old, will agree that the Zodiac is truly the story of us. Please welcome our next author, Joseph Kappa. Thanks so yes, much. Thank you. thank you for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here indeed. Absolutely. And, and I must say, um, you're a lawyer, which, which struck me with that title. Um, what kind of lawyer are you? I actually practice trust in estates and real estate work, mostly. I uh, do some municipal court as well. Um, but I happen to be the perfect convergence of interests that helped me to decipher the Zodiac. Oh, okay. I love studying ancient Greek philosophy. I love studying ancient civilizations. And as I hit Middle Age and I started staring into the night sky more and more, I became interested in the stars. And I became a member of uh, Amateur Astronomers, Inc. And uh, we have a local observatory here in Cranford, New Jersey. And I started looking at the stars and I started to become fixated on the stars of the Zodiac. And uh, that's kind of those three interests what led me to to one day figure out what does it mean? What do those symbols mean? Why in that order? And um, uh, it's a pretty remarkable discovery. It's uh, not only are the symbols of the Zodiac, uh, the stages of life from birth to death of an individual. Each picture is a stage of life that we all will go through, whether we marry, have children or not. We are all destined, if you live a full, ripe life, you will go through every one of those stages. You will be every character in the Zodiac Wheel. Interesting. 
Interesting. I've never heard that before, but that makes perfect sense as you're saying it. Yes. Um, I think the most easiest example is uh, the first stage of life would be the newborn, the intelligent creature, which has just navigated the waters of life. And if you look at all the zodiac symbols, which one describes a water creature that becomes a land animal, or better yet, an intelligent creature that has navigated the waters of life, would be Capricorn, half goat, half fish, the intelligent mammal, which should navigate the waters of life. And it's those kind of picturesque terms, uh, you will find that the, the, the symbol or the description of the symbol and the description of the stage of life are the same exact words to be used. Um, and at but it's more important than this, um, because what I learned from ancient writings, and one of the things that Plato had written, that the Zodiac ages are the ages of mankind. There's no writings anywhere in the past about them being the stages of life. That was all bleached by law about 400 AD. It became illegal to study the Zodiac. Um, if you knew that there were actually 13 constellations of the Zodiac and not 12, uh, bad things happened to you. Matter of fact, to this day, we still have a negative connotation with the number 13. You don't even say the word back in the Dark Ages. You didn't even say the word. Um, and now that all the science is coming out, uh, we now realize that uh, there was a, there, it's a hidden message here. Because what Plato tells us, uh, and what the Babylonian clay tablets tell us, is that the theory or the first law of the universe, as above, so below, applies to the Zodiac. So if the Zodiac symbols are the stages of life of one individual it is also by definition the stages of life of the entire human race the the whole human race evolves in the same stages in the same order as an individual and my example for that would be we are presently entering into the age of aquarius we all may have heard that from back in the 60s the song aquarius um the age of enlightenment well in for an individual the age of uh, being at the age of Aquarius is being midlife, where you have midlife crises, and then you start to reinvent yourself in a healthier, more positive ethos. You become the bearer of the waters of your own life. So at midlife, every human being becomes the bearer of the waters of their own life. No one's coming to save them or do it for them. They are responsible for them. It's an age of enlightenment. Well, if that's true for the individual, and what I'm saying is true, then... The whole human race entering the age of Aquarius should be experiencing two things. One, we should be having midlife crises all over the globe, and we are, and not just crises of water and, and rising sea levels and global temperatures, but crises of consciousness. Why are we celebrating people who killed people? Why do we have their statues up? Why, why don't we have role models statues up? Why, you know, why are we celebrating Christopher Columbus, who's maybe the, the third or fourth worst mass murderer in human history? We should celebrate more positive. So we're having crisis of conscience. But we're also the other thing we're seeing is, just like in middle life of an individual, we should be starting to take care of Mother Earth. And over since the 1960s going forward, we now have fresh air and clean water acts. We're going green. We're leaving no carbon footprint. We're recycling. We're just beginning to start to take care of our body the earth we live on so the whole human race is actually doing the same thing as an individual at midlife so it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing but what that tells us if we measure in ages it means that human civilization started around 21,700 bce and that is started the age of capricorn just like an individual would and what it means the age is is where's the sun on the spring equinox on march 21st when you look up at the sun, what constellation is it in front of? 
although it goes in familiar order, as we all recognize with, with astrology, in a counterclockwise circle every year, the sun is slowly drifting to the right. And that's where we measure ages. This, where is the sun on the spring equinox? Right now, we're just entering into the age of Aquarius. You were to look up or use a cell phone app, and now you can see day or night where the sun is. You will see that the sun is just touching the splashing waters of the age of Aquarius. So we are just transitioning into. So we're just beginning to take care of Earth. Uh, we're unfortunately just in the beginning of experiencing our midlife crises. I think there's a, a lot of work left ahead of us. But the age of Aquarius is an age of enlightenment. And it's not by choice. We have no choice but to fix the earth and start changing the way we do things if we want to thrive and survive in the future. The last thing I need to mention on it is there's from every age, from the age of Taurus the bull, when you had forced religious practices, you had the bullhorn. You heard the bullhorn, you came running to mass. You came running to the temple. God help you if you didn't come. The age of Aries, the ram, we had a new concept when we had monotheism and we had a new thing. I don't have to do like the rest as long as I follow God's laws. You had the ram's horn and we still use the ram's horn to this day. In the age of Pisces, the fish, we had the symbol for the fish, which is mostly associated with Christianity. But it's actually a sign, and this fish is a sign of the age of Pisces. Um, and the symbol for the age of Aquarius is the rainbow. How else would you express a symbol for water in the air? in the sky, a rainbow. So if what I'm saying is true, we should be seeing the symbol of the rainbow emerging in our society at this very time. And we are. Uh, I think the, the rise of the rainbow generation, uh, the rise of the LBGTQ community, uh, the declaration of June is Pride Month, uh, we are actually seeing the emergence of the rainbow in our society. So as I mentioned in my, my bio in the back of the book there, this Zodiac truly is the story of us, and we are playing it out to a script. Now, now can you then um, predict what is going to happen to us as a society next? I don't know if we can do with any specificity, but just like you would know, for example, after the age of Aquarius, well, for an individual, comes the age of Capricorn, senior citizen, um, where you once again are going to face navigating the waters of life, this time from life to death, right? Capricorn represents not only birth, but represents death. So you know that at the age of Capricorn, you reach the end of your life cycle, so to speak, or beginning of a new cycle. So we know, uh, for example, many writers in the past knew would come a day, and that's where we have a lot of these ancient writings. They knew that the age of Aquarius is an age of enlightenment for the individual. So people were able to write and did write about the age of Aquarius will one day be an age of enlightenment for the whole human race. Those kind of things you can see. We can't predict what's gonna happen, what's natural disasters, which wars, famines, things of that nature. But we as a human race are starting to wake up. We're starting to reconnect with our past. A lot of the things that have been not taught to our children over the last 2000 years are now coming to light. Um, the old rhetoric that we Automatic, all of a sudden, magically appeared out of nowhere around 4,000 BCE. It's now proving to be uh, untrue. We're now finding evidence that mankind has been here for 10,000 years longer than that. And as we're seeing, and as you see in my book, uh, yeah, we've, we've actually had a sophisticated civilization with laws, uh, gods, uh, rules, uh, goes all the way back to 21,700 BCE. We were actually a civilized people. That's when we declared ourselves a thing, and that's when the Zodiac was created. 
And it's one of the reasons the Zodiac is carried forward to us to this very day. It's something very important. It's the third rule of the universe. The first one is as above, so below, which by the way, says there's other humans just like us out there. The other one is the 10 and 60 base math, which among other things is 60 base math measures how you measure curved things. So basically the second rule of the universe tells us that time and space are curved and they're related. Well, we give all the accolades to Einstein for figuring that out, for actually for theorizing it, it's still not accepted. Still not all the way agreed upon. But the second rule of the universe told us time and space are curved. And the third rule was the zodiac. And we now know what it is. It's human history. Interesting and, and eye-opening. You know, it's funny. I, I just came back from a vacation to Machu Picchu, of all places. So, so hearing this and all that I saw and what the Inca, you know, years and years back recognized, it's so... Wonderful to hear that you put your um, research powers and your interest in ancient civilizations and such together in such a fascinating way. Yeah, thank you. I uh, yeah, it was it, it's been a labor of love, if you will, because once I figured it out, I became all obsessed and it becomes very hard to do anything else but want to continue to work on my project. Absolutely. Uh, so, as a lawyer, it made it quite challenging. I'm sure it did. So tell me, is is there I don't know. Is there a follow-up to this? Could there possibly be? Well, I think I'm going to write a book about the three laws of the universe, as I just mentioned at the end yes, of my speech, yes. because those three laws answer just about every philosophical question we have. The ancients who supposedly taught the Sumerian forefathers, there's only three rules, and all the society is based on it. And the spread of these three rules is actually the spread of empires from one to the other to the other, all the way to the Romans and then to the rest of the world. So these are very important rules. And it's like somebody gave us a head start. The ancients weren't uh, ignorant. They were actually probably far wiser and far and more in tune with what it meant to exist. We are. And they gave us these rules as a guidepost. And I think that's where I'm going to focus my energies now to try to show that the ancients taught us everything we needed to know to start with. And we've been searching, in, you know, like in the dark, if you will, trying to refigure out what we were already taught to begin with. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, when that next book is done, please join us back here so we can hear all of that. I will. Thank Thanks. you so much. Our final author today is Nathan Lewis, the author of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Well, we just learned about civilization, but we're facing some problems right now. Many people are out of money. And our author writes, what is behind the worst inflationary storm in more than 40 years? One that is dominating the headlines and shaking Americans by their pocketbooks. The cost of living explosion since the COVID pandemic has raised alarms about a possible return of a 1970s style great inflation. Some observers even fear a descent into the kind of Weimar-style hyperinflation that has torn apart so many nations. Is this true? If so, what should be done? How should we prepare for the future? <clears throat> inflation answers these and other questions in an engaging discussion that draws on the singular expertise of Steve Forbes, chairman of Forbes Media, acclaimed for his insights on money and the economy. Nathan Lewis, internationally renowned expert on money and taxation, and author and journalist Elizabeth Ames. The authors say that today's problems 
can be solved by discarding long-standing beliefs that helped bring on the current crisis. They include the notion that central banks can create prosperity through artificially creating money out of thin air, and also that economic stability requires a little inflation. Such ideas for decades have been wholly writ in official Washington. Inflation shows why they are misguided. The book also explains why the current rage for heedless money printing advocated by left-wing advocates of so-called modern monetary theory is likely to lead the nation and the world down the road to disaster. Packed with examples from the headlines and from history, inflation is a unique real world exploration of the subject that addresses everyday concerns of Americans under the siege by rising prices, including steps you should take to protect your wealth. Inflation is essential reading for everyone seeking to navigate these tumultuous times. Please welcome author Nathan Lewis. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, good to be here. Absolutely. Uh, certainly an important book for our times. And you had quite a time constraint on you to get out the book immediately while people wanted it. Is Was that difficult for you and for your co-authors? Uh, not, not so much. Uh, I think along with many people who have been paying attention, uh, we kind of figured out that the really extraordinary over-the-top reaction of governments and central banks in 2020, which we all read about, was going to have a fairly predictable consequence. And uh, already in early 2021, we said, you know what? We're going to have this some, some form of this problem. It didn't quite work out the way we expected, but okay. some form of inflation problem. And we were met, you know, Steve Forbes and myself, we've been involved in this stuff for decades. And we just remember, well, I don't remember personally, but Steve does, and, and I read about it, and all the stupid things that were thrown about in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, uh, and in the 2000s about inflation. Um, obviously, the experts are all over the map, still are today. You probably noticed they have wildly, they're just talking about different things, right? One's talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the other guy's talking about Federal Reserve's interest rates. Like, well, what's going on here, right? And so we needed a book that was going to hopefully, uh, you know, at least build a framework by which people could understand these things. Because if you don't have a framework, you just have babble. But mm -hmm. if you do have a framework, then you can start fixing problems. And and hopefully we will fix those problems in time. Certainly. So, so you saw that inflation was going to be the buzzword of 2022 early enough that you could get it written in time. Good for you. Uh, yeah, it was supposed to be a short, simple book. And, and, and it is a short, simple book. It's only 120 pages or so of the main text. But it, but it turned out to be quite complicated. Uh, we thought that we had chewed over the stuff. You know, in decades, I've written four previous books, mostly about monetary economics. And Forbes has written about this stuff for 40 years. Um, we thought we knew everything. We thought we kind of like were be able to do this pretty easily. But as we started to think about it, we just kind of recalled all the issues, all the things that economists say that aren't really true and all the channels of, you know, public policy debate that tend to happen, but are kind of unproductive, which we're having right now, right? The big solution to inflation is more unemployment. Because if you think if we don't have a job, that we don't have any money and then we can't buy stuff and that makes prices go down. 
Uh, that's kind of a stupid idea. <laughs> you, you know that, right? But that's what we're doing. Why are we doing this? Because we're in the habit of it, basically, right? There are many people like me saying this is kind of, it sounds kind of dumb, but they just kind of going on with it because they're, it's, they're sort of well-worn paths that have people having, people having trouble getting out of their ruts mm. that they've been in for the last 50 years. I, I'm so glad you mentioned a page count because uh, it, it's such important reading um, for, for all of us who are living, just hearing, like you said, we hear sound bites and, and inflation, your book is there to provide that basis for all of us who did not study this to, to digest, to understand. Can we get a copy of this to, you know, every single congressman who's uh, voting? Is that a thing? <laughs> well, we hope to write something that a congressman actually read. And we also, and as we were thinking about this, we said, you know, we think this is a topic that regular people can understand. They're kind of told, they're kind of taught like, oh, only the experts can figure this out. But no, I, we think actually regular people can figure this out. It's actually not that complicated. Um, and the other thing that we noticed is that, uh, you know, well, they're all, but at the same time, we're not just sort of delivering conventional wisdom, which is mostly wrong. Uh, we also wanted to sort of wrestle with, you know, issues in macroeconomics that are remain contentious. Um, so deal with it on that expert level as well. Uh, but I, I, I can try and kind of summarize some of the arguments in the book. And it, and it is actually so easy. You're kind of like, uh, is that it? Is that all there is to it? I mean, isn't there more to it than that? Nope, that's it. And I'll tell you what they are. Um, we kind of, even on the cover, we say, what is inflation? Because there seems to be a lot of disagreement about that. Um, all there is really consensus about is that it has something to do with a broad rise in prices. Um. And so we, and there have been attempts in the past to, to define inflation more specifically, but no one cares what they think. So we just kind of have to deal with it at, at that level. And it's real simple. Uh, prices can have this sort of broad-based rise for two basic reasons or two basic cause and effect processes. One is basically monetary. It's basically the responsibility of the central bank or whoever the monetary authorities are. It doesn't really have anything to do with all the other stuff. Uh, and then uh, the other is all the other stuff. And this is all the supply and demand things we all know about. You know, there's a sh relative shortage of oil, then prices are going to go up. The relative shortage of housing in certain key popular locales, housing prices are going to go up. Labor market's pretty tight. Well, hey, then you get a raise. That's not a bad thing. Um, and so these are supply and demand effects, not necessarily related to the currency. And this is not hard to understand. And, and we're having both of these right now. We've had really ex exceptional central bank activity and, and spending activity by, by governments. And then we have all these issues that we've talked about in the, in the newspapers and so forth, so forth. And okay, that's not that complicated. But you might be surprised to find that you know the experts uh, they tend to specialize. Um, they tend to specialize in one or the other. They either are specialist in supply demand stuff and they ignore the monetary things, or there's a specialist in monetary things. And they say, oh, it's all it's all monetary. It's like, well, we had COVID, we had supply. I mean, it's they're car dealers lots are not empty today because of something that the federal reserve did <laughs> but you can't get it through the thick heads that's why we have to that's why we have to address regular people who can you can say obvious things to them and they say oh yes that's obvious <laughs> believe it or not this you know anyway <laughs> and so that's the base so that's the basic idea and and when we think about the, the most pernicious the most dangerous the most destructive the most had the greatest long-term effects 
or undoubtedly the monetary side. And we all kind of understand this because from you know ages ago, we've been playing this same old game. The first coins in, in, in the very old times, the Sumerian age, the Babylonian period, let's say second millennium BC, gold and silver traded as money, but it was pretty much just, they just weigh it. Uh, they just put it on a scale and they say, you know, that shipment, that cartload of wheat, you know, will cost you a mean of, you know, a pound of silver, whatever it is. And they just put it on a scale and they weighed it. It didn't really change. There's nothing the government can do about it, it just weights and measures. And then they started to make coins and they say, well, a coin is worth a drachma or whatever it is. And the first thing they did, they started to reduce the silver in the coin, right? The first coin is 10 grams of silver, then it's got seven grams of silver, then it's got three grams of silver. And you know, they're paying the soldiers, oh, you get one coin. It's like, yeah, you, yeah, your coins used to have 10 grams of silver. Now it's only got three grams. Guess what? It takes more coins to buy things when you do that. And that's inflation. And that's what we did 2,600 years ago and continuously since then. And, and, and then since the 17th century, we've replaced the coins with paper and it's all become very virtual. And then we've probably, but in many cases, replaced the paper with some kind of digital account. And so it's all very virtual, but the basic idea is the same. Your money loses value. And for thousands of years, the idea was good governments didn't do that. Good governments, the amount of gold in our coins didn't change from century to century. Um, and that was the gold standard system. And the United States had the same thing. The value of the U.S. dollar in terms of gold did not change from, seven, from the day we signed the Constitution until about 1933. Uh, there were some goofy periods like during the Civil War, but it is more or less unchanged. And then there was one devaluation, 33, and we kept with the same system until 71. And now we have this floating fiat currency system. Uh, the value of our dollar today is about 150th, I estimate, certainly compared to gold, of what it was worth during the Kennedy administration. We took a lot of the silver out of the coin, had the same effects as Henry VIII did when he did the same thing back in the 16th century. And people understand this because we've been doing it for generations. People understand this. Uh, but oddly, and, and not very surprisingly, one of the outcomes of this burst of money creation that central banks engaged in in 2020 was a decline in currency values worldwide. But strangely enough, that's the one thing we never talk about. When's the last time you read about that in the Wall Street Journal? Oh, currency value declined. Then the, in markets adjust, takes more money to buy things. Yeah, they talk about money supply, they talk about interest rates, they talk about blah, 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 but they never said that. <laughs> um, which is kind of interesting. And you know, people, that has always been the focus of, of American economic policy, global economic policy for centuries. It's the one thing we don't talk about. Okay. And like that, it makes so much sense. Yeah. And we had a way, and in the old days, which was not that long ago, 1960s, you said, yeah, governments that do that get into trouble um, because it screws up all the, it screws, it screws up the economy. It, it used to compare the weights and measures, actually. Uh, uh, anyway, this is a very common comparison. You know, if, if the length of the foot changed like our currency change and, you know, the length of the foot was 10% less next year than it was this year, then all business would have to somehow, you know, deal with this thing, right? All the promises that, you know, foot was this would have to be renegotiated and all that sort of thing. Um, and that's kind of what happens to the economy when your currency changes value. And so once you figure that out, uh, you know, don't do that. What's the solution to face? Yeah, don't do that. Don't take the silver out of the coins. Don't have a don't have a floating fiat currency, paper, digital, whatever that drops in value. 
like ours has over the last 50 years, but you know, but now we have a two cent dollar. <laughs> uh, don't do that. And you won't have a problem. And the way, and the solution to that has always been uh, historically for the last 2000 years, I wrote a book about this, uh, you know, link your currency to gold. And, and, we, and most countries actually do this today. They have their own homegrown central bank. Well, they used to have their own homegrown central bankers. They used to have their own floating fiat currencies and they had the same old problem. They had the same problems that we have today. And they said, well, yeah, we're not going to do that. And they linked their currencies typically to the dollar or the euro because, uh, you know, it, it separated from domestic politics. Okay. You know, you can no longer print Peruvian nuevos sold fund the military, whatever, you know, adjust domestic interest rates in, in Italy <laughs> before the euro to win the next election. Uh, and this, all this kind of stuff. They said, no, take it out of our hands. Just link our currency to the euro because euro is not the greatest thing in the world, but it's better than we used to have. And it's the same basic process. In, in, in human history, there's really only been two solutions. There's some variant of gold standard, or uh, which we use in the United States for almost two centuries, very successful. Or there's the eggheads with PhDs make it up as they go along system. <laughs> And, you know, haven't you noticed that in 50 years, none of the eggheads can agree on anything? Haven't you noticed they're always content? You know, they're never going to agree on anything. <laughs> it's always going to be just them, like, having arguments and making stuff up. Right? No one agrees on anything. Not, not yeah, just yeah, that. yeah. People disagree. Yes. But, but on the other hand, there are countries in the past that have managed to stick with gold for over 700, you know, over 700 years in some cases. There are many countries today that are able to link their currency to the dollar or euro for decades very successfully. Uh, it's politically possible. Humans can do this. <laughs> 10 economists in a room will never come to any consensus about anything for 10 minutes. And you and the outcome of that is just kind of a currency that is kind of you know, random, chaotic, tends to decline in value over time. And so, and so we're, we're, we're trying to, we're getting into a time now where we've had this sort of chronic low-level currency depreciation over the last 50 years since the 60s uh you know I, I go to a room and say you know you guys you know monetary economics is complicated but you guys remember a barrel of oil in the 1960s cost three bucks baby boomers go yeah i do remember that and he say in the 1990s barrel oil cost 20 bucks and all companies were profitable they're fine they made money gen x people go yeah i remember that I could fill up my car for 85 cents a gallon. Yeah, it's okay. Um, now it's a hundred dollars. Um, and no oil company on earth can make a can make a buck below fifty dollars. You know, it's just not economic. What's going on? <laughs> and they say, well, obviously the currency is worth less. Um, and that's and that's the basic process. And that's all we're ever going to have. <laughs> that's the PhD standard. That's what's going to happen, right? And and we're going to and that can accelerate is accelerated in other countries many times. Very common. We take extreme examples like Venezuela, but you could look at Italy before the euro. You could look at Greece. You could look at India. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing, but less. You could look at Mexico. Um, example we have in our book: uh, the Mexican peso used to be worth three pesos to the dollar. And then in the early nineties, you go to Cancun, you get your $5 beers, you go up to the bars, 15 pesos, $5 beer. Now you walk to the airports, 20 pesos to the dollar. You go get to get your resort in Cancun, your $5 beer costs hundred pesos. What happened? <laughs> well, they didn't have hyperinflation, but 
what has happened to Mexico in a more little more accelerated way is the same thing that happens to us. And then uh, that's that's the longer term process of inflation, um, which now I think threatens to accelerate because for the first time in a long, long time, actually in the United States history, the first time since the 1780s, since the the Continental Congress financed the American Revolution by printing banknotes out of nothing. We are now getting a situation where it's not just about managing the unemployment, not just about managing interest rates, not just about you know fooling around with the economy. It's getting down to just straight up government financing, yeah. right? No, I get that. And and there's a certain political process to this, right? It's you know, every country that does this knows it's a bad thing to do. It's like the heroin user with the needle in his arm. You know, it's like I heard this is a bad idea. I probably shouldn't have a needle in my arm. Right. But they do it. But the country. <laughs> well, and know. and we're getting we're kind of getting to that needle in the arm period. Uh, it seems to me, and everyone kind of understands this. Um, but we're either going to have to prevent it, which in my view is not too likely, or we're going to have to have a solution afterwards. And the solution afterwards, when we did this, I hyperinflated the currency in the 1780s at the Revolutionary War, is we wrote a constitution that said, don't do that. Well, <laughs> and it worked first readers is to understand it. And uh, and for that, we have inflation, which I am so grateful. Um, so so I think I, I think I might know the answer to this for you, Nathan, but let's start with Thomas. Thomas, tell me who would be the person to buy your book for today? If I were going to uh, go shopping, shall we say, and say, who am I going to get a copy of um, The Great Convergence for? Can you describe the reader who I should be shopping for? Well, I, I did have a reader in mind when I wrote The Great, Great Convergence. It turned out that uh, everybody buys it. I mean, I thought it's going to be mostly uh intellectuals uh living in an ivory tower turns out and, and mostly man it, it, it turns out it, it's it's actually very popular with uh, with women and uh, young people too i i think uh if you look for something that's that, that that's different subversive something that will make you think that, that this is the type of reader uh my book uh, would be attractive to awesome. if you like if you like a strange kind of humor if you if you want to it, it's it's not an airport book it's not something you just you know breeze through you basically it's like uh i don't know uh, like, like a cake you, you just taste it and put it aside and taste a little bit more and uh, i don't know have a few laughs and, and, i like and, that <laughs> I like that and good description. Uh, Joseph, same question to you. If I'm going shopping today, who should I be thinking about to purchase a copy of the Zodiac for? Well, I think that uh, anybody who's interested in uh, astrology, uh, who's already got an idea of uh, what those stars are and something that relates to our history, uh, I also think that it would apply to anybody who's interested in, in, in human civilization or the beginnings and origins of human history. Um, uh, that's where I found my biggest challenge thus far, uh, trying to find an academic. There is no discipline about the Zodiac. There's no uh, professor of 
uh, the Zodiac. Maybe I might be the first one, if you will. Um, right. And um, but trying to get that out there that uh, this is our true history. And there's something eventually I would hope down the line that every school kid would come to learn. Uh, this is how it happened. No magic, no, uh, you know, nothing of that nature. Very simple, natural process. Most of the theories that we have about our history are true, but the Zodiac tells us the timeline. And I think everybody should need to know it. So I guess anybody should read. Anybody who wants to know why we're here and what's it all about should uh, enjoy this book. Fantastic. Thank you. And Nathan, um, who should I be buying a copy of Inflation for today when I go shopping? Well, we wrote this book just for the you know interested, reasonably intelligent average person, high school student, stay-at-home mom, even a congressman if he has time, business, you know, <laughs> and someone engaged in business. Uh, and because we think that you can understand these things and you can actually understand it better than most economists. And we also think that this is going to be necessary if we're going to have, it's going to be necessary for just average people to understand these things. If we're going to have some kind of positive solution to these kind of problems. Makes sense. Makes sense. But thank you for, for mentioning the, uh, I'll say the reading level of it, which is, especially with the subject matter, definitely helpful. Well, for all three of you, we definitely have things to be reading and learning about. So I can't thank you enough for joining me today on Between the Covers. And when your next book comes out, please join us and send any uh, materials along if you're doing any appearances so that we can share them with our audiences. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.